Yehuda Geber with another episode of a, another podcast of Jewish History Soundbites. And um, we started a little bit last time about the world of the Baal Shem Tov, and now we'll, we'll try to move on again um, to understand and to connect a little bit to hear the story of who he was as a person. Um, and he was, as a child, he... he his parents died when he was quite young. Um, again, with the Baal Shem Tev, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tev, Rabbi Yisrael Ben Eliezer, his father was Eliezer. Um, there is a lot of myth mixed with reality. And um, and there's, there's the, there's, you know, we have to, to, sometimes difficult to separate the legend from the, the person himself. And uh, according to legend, his father on his deathbed, you know, is leaving a little child, essentially alone in the world. He's an only child. His mother had already passed away, and now his father was leaving him. And he says to him, fear no one. That's what I have to tell you. Fear no one. Don't ever be as scared of anyone, um, only of Hashem, only of God. And uh, that's, that's a lesson that the Baal Shem Tev uh, definitely taught and believed and lived by and for sure, there's no there's no question about it. His his self confidence and his his understanding of his mission um, for the world is is very apparent in the the little writings that we do have from him, and we have almost no writings from him um, directly. Uh, much has written been written about him, but very little written by him. Um, but even in that little bit, it's very clear that this is someone who believed in himself, believed in his program, believed in what he was doing, and he saw himself um, as a leader of his people, which we'll get to in a second. Now, he spends time doing different odd jobs. He was a shaykhit for a time. He was involved in helping a local Jewish school, local cheder, helping the the Malamed, the teacher of the cheder for a period of time. He definitely spent some time in seclusion in the Carpathian Mountains. And being that he was a Mekobol, he was definitely connected to the world of Kabbalah, this time of his Baydidus, of seclusion in, the, in, the, uh, in those areas, um, was custom, was definitely not, not different than many other Mekobolim of his time, then definitely not different than many other people who were involved in these groupings of Mekobolim at the time. And um, later on, at some point, when he's already rejoined society, and he already has a reputation as a Baal Shem, as someone who uses practical Kabbalah in a certain sense to help people, to assist people, to heal them from different sicknesses, and also uses regular folk medicine that was common at the time for all Baal Shem to use. Um, all types of schoolers and Kameas and Tfilas, which very often had mystical meanings and Kabbalistic uh, associations. At this point, he starts to emerge as as uh, as his as uh, as with 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 a different agenda as well, with an additional agenda, different with an additional excuse me agenda as well. He sees himself, besides for being a Mekobel and a Baal Shem, which is the first aspect of the Baal Shem Tev, the second aspect being, is, is that he sees himself as a leader to his people. He sees himself as being in a role where he can better the situation of the Jewish people, especially in the areas of the Ukraine at the time. 
he sees himself at the, as, at a time like not only is the Frankists, which we just mentioned, which is a spiritual threat from within and at times even a physical threat, but also a new recurrence of what had then been in the 17th century, the Cossacks, but in the 18th century they assumed a new name. They were more wild gangs as opposed to organized Cossacks. They were called the Haidemaks. And the Haidemaks wreaked havoc in Jewish life in the Ukraine at the time. And there were very often pogroms, and these people would pillage villages and murder and steal and do all kinds of terrible things. And uh, the Baal Shem Tev, in some of the writings that we have from him himself or about him, describe how these pogroms weighed greatly on his mind, and he would cry and daven, and he felt he can influence in the upper spheres because of his special tefillahs, and because he believed and understood and knew the power of his tefillahs, that he can change that. And he said he has the responsibility to do that as a leader of his people. And the third, and probably, or definitely, the most important aspect of how he saw himself is that he saw himself as a mechadish, as someone who had new ideas in Avedis Hashem, in how to serve Hashem. And he felt a need to teach those ideas and to spread them. And if we connect those two last aspects of his personality for a second, his leadership role that he saw for himself in the Jewish people also came out in this aspect that he felt that this need, he had teachings that should be taught. And as a Makubal, he saw himself capable of doing what in Kabbalistic circles was known and accepted for certain holy people to do things like this, to do an Elias Neshama, to go up his, during sleeping times or during an, an ecstatic state of, of mystical uh, times during his davening, and he writes about it. Now, this is one of the only letters that we have from the Baal Shem Tev, and that's why it's important to emphasize. We said there's a lot of legend, a lot of myth, but this is an actual letter that he wrote to his brother-in-law living in Israel, living in Eretz Yisrael, Gershon Kitaver, and he describes an alias neshama that he had. Now, being that I don't profess to know anything about Kabbalah or any of these mystical, uh, um, uh, and I haven't had any Elias Neshama lately, not that I know of, but, so I can't really explain how it works, and uh, and I definitely don't know or understand, but we, you know, as a historian, you have to take the words at face value. It's a document written by him, and he's describing an experience that he experienced. So there's, that's just the facts on the ground. And he describes how in Rosh Hashanah, he has this Elias Neshama, and he's trying to better the situation of Kali Yisrael for the coming year because, because uh, they're facing pogroms and they're facing all kinds of things. And he goes up into the highest heavens to intercede on their behalf. And he says, I reached places that I had never reached before. And I reached a place where I met Mashiach himself. And I said to him, A Masai Ka'asimar, when are you coming? And Mashiach responds to him, and he says to him all kinds of other things when you teach other people to do what you're capable of doing in Kabbalah with Shemus of Hashem. But the key words are before that, when your wellsprings go forth, when you're able to teach your teachings to others. And the Baal Shem Tov understands that what he's teaching 
has value. And this is important for him to spread. And he teaches about how to reach an ecstatic state of dveikus to Hashem. And how to daven properly to Hashem. Now, the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, who definitely is, uh, we should speak about at a different time, definitely a fascinating personality, he says, he, he wrote in his, uh, in his um, interrogation by the Tsarist authorities when he was in jail, he wrote that the main chiddush, the main insight and new idea that the Baal Shem Tov brought was that he taught us how to daven. He said before the Baal Shem Tov, we forgot, we had forgotten how to daven, and he taught us how to daven. So that's that's it's an incredible idea that this is this is the whole this is the whole idea of the Baal Shem Tov, that he wants people to connect to Hashem. He wants people to be able to to uh, to revitalize, not through fasting and not through torturing themselves, which was very common in mystical circles until that time. It was very common in Christian circles at that time. And Catholic, Orthodox Church. And he says, no. Hashem is everywhere. Hashem is everywhere that you look for Him. And you just take what seemingly is just physicality and make it spiritual, lift it up, make it real, incorporate it into your life. Now he moves to Mezhebizh and starts to spread this. Does he receive any opposition? It's accepted to think, or it was accepted to think, that he was. they opposed him. There's all kinds of stories that attest to that. And we know that there was a tremendous hisnagdus to Hasidus later on emanating from Vilna and other towns. And that's definitely also a topic for another time. But the Baal Shem Tov himself as a personality was never opposed. There was an incredible, incredible document discovered oh, about 30 some odd years ago by Professor Moshe Rossman when he went looking for what's the story with the Baal Shem Tev? If the Baal Shem Tev was a popular person and he lived in Mezhebizh, then there ha- he had to have left a public record. And lo and behold, in the archives, the personal archives of the Charatovsky family, there are tax records of taxpayers in Mezhebizh during the lifetime of the Baal Shem Tev. And when one goes through these tax records, he finds something absolutely amazing. You find the names of the people mentioned in the story, the, in the Sipurei Hasidim, in the Hasidic Shemaises of Shivche Baal Shem Tev. We find the real names. We find the names of the Baal Shem Tev's son. We find the names of people who lived there. We know where they lived. It has their address. We know how, many, how much taxes they paid. And then, lo and behold, on one of the lines of those taxes is the Baal Shem Tev himself. The Baal Shem Tev appears there at, with the name Baal Shem. Baal Shem, that's what he's called in the official Polish tax records. This is the physical evidence documented from outside sources, corroborated, not from internal Hasidic sources, about where the Baal Shem Tev was, where he lived, and everything that we can learn from these records, this incredible, incredible record. And, and actually, what happens? What, what, is it, what does it seem, how, how, he, how he paid his taxes? It says that he did not have to pay property tax on his house. You know why? Because his house was owned by the Kehillah. It was owned by the Jewish community. And the Jewish community gave him this house to use because he was a public figure. And anything that was owned by the Jewish community, it was a public housing, essentially, they did not have to pay taxes on it. 
And the Baal Shem Tov was given this house, and it was right next to the shul, the famous Baal Shem Tov shul that has been rebuilt and reconstructed, that we go whenever we visit Mezhebizh, and really can almost touch the atmosphere there, this ancient wooden shul, which is brand new, but it's been redone perfectly as it used to be. And and uh, right near there was the Baal Shem Tov's house. Now he's absolved from taxes. I always find it ironic, actually, that the beginning of Hasidus, the founder of Hasidim, the major fact that we know about his life from the public records, not from internal Hasidish records, is that he did not pay taxes. And I find that just ironic that, uh, you know, that somehow seems to be, at least in the stereotypical sense, a recurring theme throughout the history of Hasidus. But uh, that's parenthetically, that has nothing to do with the story. But... Um, but the Baal Shem Tev is supported and respected by the community. He is not opposed. He's given a free house. He obviously is respected. He was looked up to as a leader, both as a Baal Shem also, and someone who had what to say. And he, we know from his correspondence that he corresponded with other rabbis of the time about, um, about things that needed to be done amongst the Jewish people and about different halachic issues that were going on. And uh, he was he was um, uh, he was he was uh, definitely respected and supported. He found he forms and there's some sort of chabura of people who surround him in Mezhebizh. Some are from surrounding towns who come to visit him. Some are people who are full time in Mezhebizh, and he already has a following, a small following. It's definitely not a movement. It's definitely not a Hasidic movement that happens by his students. By the time he dies in 1760, he does not have more than 100, 150, what we would call Hasidim. And if we would throw back it to the Baal Shem Tev, from, from the Baal Shem Tev to our times, we would say the two most distinctive features of, 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 a, of what we would call mainstream Hasidim today is a certain distinct mode of dress and a certain connection to a specific Rebbe. Both of those are absent from the Baal Shem Tev's teachings and from the stories and from from who he was as a person and what he taught. It wasn't about a specific mode of dress. It had nothing to do with it. It doesn't appear anywhere. And even the fact that you're associated with a specific rabbi is not fully developed in the Baal Shem Tov's teachings. The tzaddik does appear already at that early time, but that's later developed by the Naim Alimelech, the Rabbi Rabmailech, the Chais of Lublin, which are topics for a future podcast. But um, in the Baal Shem Tov's world that, 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 that is a somewhat minor uh, subject. Just bring out a, a, an idea, um, a story, idea, whatever you want to call it, of to, to, to understand, so what is he teaching exactly? Is it something new? If it's something new, then it's reform. And um, why is it revolutionary? Is it new? Is it reform? Is he trying to change the religion? What's going on? And the reality is that he didn't believe he was creating anything new. He was making a new emphasis on things that had been that he believed had been neglected. He was trying to breathe a new life in the downtrodden people of the Jewish the, the Jewish people, both the its elite and the masses. And there was a message there for everyone. There's a message there for every single Jew. When we go Friday night into Mezhebizh today, the hotel in Mezhebizh, Friday night, it's excellent food. But besides for all this excellent food, they serve somewhat of a, not a non-excellent food, but some of a simple food. And they call it Michael Baal Shem Tev. Why is it called Michael Baal Shem Tev? It's, it's simis, carrots, 
and Farful. And in the old Yiddish, it was it, would, it was called Farful Tzimis, and um, and uh, and um, uh, I forget the other name of it. Either way, it doesn't make a difference. They serve that at the meal. Why is it called Meichel Baal Shem Tov? Many Hasidim eat it, by the way. And the reason it's called Meichel Baal Shem Tov is simply because Baal Shem Tov ate those foods. Why did the Baal Shem Tov eat farful and steamed carrots? Probably because there was no other food. They ate simple foods. This is what Jews in the Ukraine had. Some of them were poor. This is what was eaten at the time. It was nothing special about him eating it. It was nothing special. Every Jew ate it. And if you were richer, you ate something else. So what's so special about the Michael Baal Shem Tev, and why is it associated with him, and why do we have to eat carrots and farful just to make it, just because it was the Baal Shem Tev? And that's exactly the point. Because the Baal Shem Tev said that the, the, the words farful and simis and whatever the name of the other food was, which escapes me at this moment, if you use the concept of atbash in gematria, Gematria, Atbash, that Aleph equals Tuf, and Bez equals Shin, and Gimel equals Resh, and Dalit equals Kuf. So it comes out that these two foods, the acronym and the Rosh Tevis of these two foods is actually Yudke Vavke Hashem's name. So when you're sitting down at your Shabbos table, you're not really eating Tzimis, you're not really eating carrots and farful, you're eating Hashem's name and your food is holy and your Shabbos is holy and it's Kedusha and your Shabbos is different and it's Besimcha and even though you're eating because you're hungry and you have nothing else to eat, but all of a sudden it's filled with so much Kedusha. So was he joking around? Was he kidding? Come on, Yudke Vavke, that's what it's all about. It's much more than that. It's, 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 it's nothing to do with Yudke Vavke. It's not because it's Hashem's name. That's the name of the food. And you eat it because you're hungry. If you really, really want to get there, you're eating it because it's Shabbos and it's a mitzvah to eat. But, you know, let's be honest. The fact that it's Yudke Vavke has nothing to do with the equation. So what was the Baal Shem Tov talking about? And this here is the, the brings us to what hopefully will be the next stage of what really was the Baal Shem Tov coming to do. What, what was it all about? What was his whole, his whole lifestyle? What was his teachings? What did he give over to his students? And how did that develop into a movement? It's that he said, you're anyways eating. And it's anyways these foods. And it's these foods because that's what you found in the market that day, and that's what Jews in the Ukraine eat. And you're eating because you're hungry, and you're eating because it's a mitzvah on Shabbos. That's all a given. So now let's see what we can do with that. That's all given. So we could just do it, but we could do, or perhaps we can do something more. Let's take all the things that we're doing anyway and try to do something with it. And here we can do something because we found the little remez. There's Yudke Vavke, there's Hashem's name, and now it's Kedusha, and now when you eat it, it's holy, and now Shabbos is different, now you're different, and now you are serving Hashem with every bite, and you're doing what you're doing is so much more meaningful and has so much more power and holiness. And that's exactly what the Baal Shem Tov was doing. He said, take the things you're doing anyway. Take the life you're leading anyway. Take the world that you have of Gashmis, of Ruchmanis, of physicality, of holiness, whatever you're doing, and take it a step further. Make it more holy. Make it more real. And give it much more meaning. And when you give much more meaning, you'll be happier. You'll be serving Hashem all the time. And your life will be so much more meaning. And that's the message he tried to spread. And we'll continue with this hopefully next time. This is Yudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. Questions, comments, for tours. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. If you enjoy, give a good rating. 
Share it with your friends and family. Follow us on, at, on Twitter at JSoundbites, and we hope you enjoy.